My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. Um, we are um, on a journey, but I think it's really important both for those who are new uh, and those who've been here a while. We, almost all of us at some point in our lives, at some point, um, decided that we could do life ourselves. Our, our natural tendency, we were born into a sin nature that says, I can be my own God. I don't need God. I don't need to be saved. I'll save myself. I'll do what I want to do. And most of us get to a point, for me it happened at age 32, when I finally woke up and realized that I'm really not good at being God at all. And then my life was in a ditch, and, and, and I couldn't help myself get out. I finally got to the end of myself and realized there had to be a lot more to life than what I'd been doing. And I stumbled into a place like this on an Easter Sunday, and I learned uh, about Jesus, and I learned about myself, and I was finally able to see myself the way God sees me, as someone who's in rebellion. And so I surrendered to Christ, and what happened was weird because everything in my life, I've always been somebody who could study. And if I studied it and understood it, I could make a decision. So I, so I decided I would start studying Jesus, and, and then I would make a decision. But this time, I had to know. I was at a point in my life where it wasn't just esoteric, it wasn't just interesting. I had to know. And I literally prayed to God, if you're real, you need to let me know. And so my heart's desire was to find truth. And I thought I would just learn enough and then I could make an educated decision. But what happened was, as I began to learn about him, something changed inside of me. And I began to realize that I was falling in love with a God I had previously resisted. And the more I learned, the more I wanted to surrender. And the weird thing was, the more I gave up me being God and me being in control and me knowing everything, the more he showed up and began to change me. And I literally became a different person on the inside. I began changing, not because I decided to follow some rules or not because I signed up for some religion. I began to change because God changed the very core of who I am. And every week, we just keep coming back because the more we surrender, the more he changes, the more he changes, the more we want to thank him. Because I don't think there's any of us who have experienced God in that way who would ever want to go back and be the person we used to be. And the story of Christmas is about that transformation. It's about God deciding to come to earth to save us from ourselves. And in this series, series we're talking about... Hi, Poindexter. Um, okay, so in this series, we're talking about how many people just want to focus at Christmas about a little baby and how Jesus never gave us the option of keeping Jesus in the manger. That we can only see his birth if we understand his crucifixion and his resurrection. Now, do we have anybody here from Chicago? Anybody been to Daly Plaza and seen the nativity scene? Was Jesus there when you were there? You see, what's happened is back in 1999, there was a big story in Chicago about how the baby Jesus had been stolen from the nativity scene at Daly Plaza. People looked all over for baby Jesus. They could not find him. But he had been taken. And finally, the police recovered the baby at a bus station after getting an anonymous Crime Stopper tip. So they decided they better start securing Jesus to the manger. So they, they started out with a cord and they'd wrap Jesus to the, to the manger, but, but people came and cut the cord and Jesus was stolen again. So eventually they decided they had to bolt and padlock Jesus into the manger. They didn't want anybody to steal it. It didn't work though, because five years later in 2004, the same thing happened. This time, a 19-year-old college student was able to slip baby Jesus out from underneath the cables and steal him. The law caught up with him after two days and they returned Jesus to the manger and he got charged with the misdemeanor of stealing Jesus. So they upped the security again. 
This time they developed a group of people, undercover people who would watch Jesus all day and all night. They were called the God Squad. And their job is to make sure that Jesus never again gets stolen from Daily Plaza. Their job is to make sure that Jesus stays in the manger. They're very tight-lipped about what security measures they use. They won't talk about it. But they assure everybody Jesus will never be out of the manger again. Sadly, that's how many people spend Christmas. They never let Jesus out of the manger. You see, you can't bolt Jesus into the manger because his story comes from beginning to end. In fact, you can't really understand the manger unless you understand the cross and the resurrection. When I prayed about this series, I really got the impression that God wants us to look at why Jesus came rather than the typical Christmas story of mangers and shepherds and wise men and details of trips to Bethlehem. Last week, we introduced a key reason that Jesus came, and I want to further explore that today. You see, Jesus talks at times about a sword. He, he, he tells his disciples that, that his word is like a sword, and many have misinterpreted what it means when Jesus said he came to bring a sword. Most of us think of a sword as an instrument of violence. It's a weapon of warfare. Some people throughout Christian history have used Jesus' words to justify war against non-Christians. Others have used it to justify Christians killing non-Christians in the name of God for self-defense or to protect their church. I want to go back 2,700 years ago. Prophet Isaiah, writing 700 years before Jesus arrived, and he said that when the Messiah comes, when the king is born, they're going to call him Prince of Peace. It's an amazing title when you consider that at the time Isaiah wrote this, every prince, every king, every monarch were seen as those who bring war and destruction. The idea of a prince of peace was unheard of. Now, if you know the Christmas story, then you know that on the night Jesus was born, there were shepherds out in the fields. And the night sky was broken and shattered into a glorious light by angelic beings that interrupted their darkness, both physically and spiritually. Luke 2, verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace on earth. It's one of the most dominant themes of the Christmas season. It's on Christmas cards. You see it posted everywhere. Peace on earth. And yet, we think Jesus came to bring peace to earth and to end conflict and strife and make our lives more comfortable and more safe and more secure and more wrinkle-free. But we find out that Jesus came and the earth is not at peace. How can he be the prince of peace when he came and the world is still fighting? The scriptures say he will be called the prince of peace and he's come to establish peace. But could the establishment of peace actually cause a time of unrest? In, in Matthew 10, Jesus says something that disrupts our assumptions about who he is and why he came. The chapter begins with Jesus selecting his 12 disciples. Then in verse 5, he sends them out on a mission to proclaim the kingdom of God throughout the villages and the towns of Israel. He gives them specific instructions raise the dead, heal the sick, proclaim the good news. Then in verse 26, he tells them that. 
as they're going to do this, they're going to be persecuted. People are going to hate them because of him, the Prince of Peace. Then in verse 34, Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set man against his father and daughter against her mother and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. He's the Prince of Peace. He he comes to separate families. He, He brings a sword. What are we supposed to make of it? Well, what happened to the Prince of Peace? What happened of goodwill towards all men? You see, Jesus bringing his sword doesn't fit with our view of Jesus in the manger. Sweet, innocent, meek, mild baby. It doesn't fit with our cultural view of Jesus the man who's sweet and gentle and our best friend. How do we reconcile our view with the fact that Jesus says he comes to bring a sword? What does he mean? Well, first of all, he's not speaking literally. Jesus did not come literally wielding a sword like a conqueror. He never does. Nowhere in the Gospels. It's important to put this this statement in the context of the chapter. You see, when Jesus was giving people, giving his disciples their instructions, he tells them what they should bring with them. He tells them, don't bring money, don't bring a bag to put anything in, don't bring an extra change of clothes, don't bring extra shoes, don't bring a walking stick, don't even take food. And he certainly does not tell them to take a sword with them. So he's not speaking literally here. He's using the sword as a metaphor, as a symbol. So what does it represent? Most of us think of the sword as a weapon of violence. Now remember, this is the same Jesus who told us to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, turn the other cheek. He modeled for us as he hung on the cross. He prayed to forgive those who were in the process of that very moment of murdering him. This is Jesus that told Peter to put away the sword. Because those who live by the sword will die by the sword, he said. He's not advocating violence. What, What does this sword mean? Well, we often have to look at Scripture to interpret Scripture. Paul told the Ephesians about putting on the armor of God. Look at what he says. In all circumstance, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Hebrew writer in Hebrews 4.12 said the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, of discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You see, the sword that Jesus brings to the world is the truth of the Word of God. It's the Word of God that divides families. It's the truth of the Word of God that divides relationships. The Word of God forces a decision. You either surrender to Christ or you go against Him. That's what the Word of God does. He brings a sword. The truth of the Word. In Scripture, both Jesus and Himself and the Bible are called the Word of God. And you may wonder, how can it be both? Well, it depends on the context and the Hebrew or Greek word that's used. Let me read to you John 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing, not anything was made that was made. In him was life, and the life is the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
The term translated word here is the word logos. It means the expression of a thought, the written word of God. It's the total message of God to man. It's everything God wants man to know. It's the written word of God. Thessalonians 2. And we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Logos, the full, complete word, truth of God. Jesus embodied that total message. He, he came and he, he's called the Logos or the word because he represents the fullness of everything God is. Colossians 1.18 And he is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Now another word that is used for the word is the word rhema. And when rhema is used, it's referring to the spoken word of God. So if you want to think of these two, logos is basically the written word, the essence of everything God is, and rhema is the spoken word of God, the power of speaking it. Jesus used the term rhema in the desert when Satan was tempting him and he confronted him with the word of God spoken to him. So Jesus brings the truth of the word of God and he is the truth of the word of God. That truth is the sword. So Jesus is the sword, so is the word. But to better understand this, we need to understand another word. Shalom. Key is in the word peace. Jesus says he's not come to bring peace. The word he uses here is the word shalom. A word with a nuanced meaning. It doesn't simply mean peace. Peace like the absence of violence. It's peace that comes from within. It's wholeness. It's the peace that comes from knowing you're complete. Knowing that you're okay with God. Knowing that He's okay with you. It's a global sense of all is well. It is well with my soul. Shalom. It comes from being completely together, unified with your Creator. It's the wholeness that comes when nothing is missing. Everything is one. That's shalom. So Jesus says, look, I've not really come to bring wholeness this time. I've come to bring the opposite. The, the opposite of shalom is division. He used the word sword to talk about the cutting, the dividing, to sever in half. He says, look, I didn't come to bring peace. I brought a sword. I didn't come to bring wholeness and unity. I came to cause division by using the truth of the Word of God to force everyone to choose. And that's what fits the context here. Jesus is telling His disciples, you're going to go through the villages and you're going to be persecuted and hated because of Me. Because of Logos. Because of the Word. Because of the truth. I've come to bring a sword. When you preach the truth, people will resist it. How do you know when you preach the truth? People walk out. People send you emails. What Jesus is saying is, look, the mission that I'm on, the reason this baby is in the manger is that we need to turn the entire world upside down. And we see Jesus doing that from the very moment that He's born. When King Herod heard that this Messiah, this King, was born in Bethlehem, it bothered him even though it's a baby. Jesus was already a threat to his power. Jesus had come to turn the world upside down, and that turns Herod's world upside down. So he tried to have every child in Bethlehem under two killed. 
Jesus came to bring peace, and yet every child under two is killed in Bethlehem, and a king is already trying to kill him. When Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to the temple as an infant to be dedicated, there was an old man named Simeon there. When he was holding the child, he told Mary and Joseph, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. In other words, this child's going to turn Israel upside down. Some are going to rise, some are going to fall, but the one thing that's going to happen is division. So the first thing we need to correct about our perception of Jesus during this season is that we don't celebrate the birth of a passive Savior. A pushover Messiah. Somebody who just came to make us feel better and give us a wrinkle-free life. That's not who he is. Jesus is the most radical person who ever walked on the earth. He didn't come to bring peace. He came to bring a sword, the Word of God. To turn the world upside down. To alter the world and to dethrone every illegitimate king that's not him. You see, we all have kings in our life that we bow to, worship to, and praise. Jesus says, I come to turn that upside down. He invited people who everyone else thought were completely disqualified from being connected to God. The sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the thieves, the drunkards, the demon-possessed, all those who were on the outskirts of society. He welcomed them back in communion with God. And he welcomes us back in communion with God as well. You see, he overturned the world by showing God's lavish, radical love for every person. And then he invites us to love God with just as much, with our whole heart and mind and soul and strength. The reason why this is threatening, the reason why this turned the world upside down is because to be back in a proper relationship with God, to love Him with all that we are, means taking something else in our lives out of that place. You see, most people reject the Word of God because it forces them to give up something they don't want to give up. And when they boil that down, it's their pride, and their belief that they're their own God. Every one of us has put something in place that rightfully belongs to God. Just as Herod was threatened by the birth of the rival king, every one of us at some point is threatened by the birth of Jesus. Because he's come to dethrone whatever's on the throne in your life. He has authority over everything. And he could take that away from you, but he's like, no, I'm going to leave it there, and I want you to choose me instead. I could change it. I could take it away. I could make you realize you're not all you think you are. I just want you to choose me. That's why he came to bring a sword. That's why he came to bring the truth. He came to turn your life upside down. You see, we think of peace as the absence of war between nations. And many people hoped that the Messiah, and many Jewish people today still hope that the Messiah is going to come and address the conflict of human war. But what he came to address was the conflict of our battle with God. You see, we're all born enemies of God. Every one of us. We're all naturally born to follow Satan, to worship ourselves, to do what we want to do, to ignore authority, to ignore structure, to deny anything that threatens our existence as our own God, or anything that makes us worship anything other than ourselves. We are born with a nature that is against God. The Bible uses the word enemy to describe a person's relationship with God before they gave their lives to Christ. Paul in Romans says that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. 
Another verse in Colossians, he says that before salvation, people are alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Every person on this planet right now has either surrendered to Christ or is an enemy of Christ. There's no middle ground. Before a person is saved, he's living in opposition to God as an enemy of God because he rejects or denies God's existence and his character as revealed in Logos, the Scripture, the Word. The person's actions and goals are directly against and oppose God's desires. And even though our natural state is separate from God, God has never intended to leave us there. We do not need to remain enemies of God. God gives each person the choice of whether they want a relationship. You see, the question isn't, did He come for us? That's obvious. The question is, have you come to Him? Ephesians 2, 1-9 puts it this way. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And were by nature children of wrath, But God, rich in His mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. Not the result of works, but that no one will boast. While Jesus offers everyone in the world this supernatural peace, not all will find it. Many, many will reject it. Look at what the angels told the shepherds. Let's go back and look carefully at what they said. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. Is that on the Christmas card? Those with whom He's pleased? You mean not everybody gets peace? No. The angels were clear. Those with whom He is pleased. Those who have a relationship with Him. They'll find peace. No one else will. The good news is not that Jesus brings peace to the earth. The good news is He brings it to you. Peace among those with whom He's pleased. You see, the question isn't, did God come for us? The question is, Are we willing to come to God? Ultimately, God will have victory over His enemies. 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority, and power. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. In the end, the Scriptures are clear. And part of what divides people are truths like this. In the end, Satan, the demons, and the people who choose to live in rebellion of Jesus and even death will be defeated by God. The enemies are no match for Him and you are no match for Him no matter what your own God talk is telling you. After God defeats His enemies... Those who believe in Him will live free of pain and sorrow in a new world. Revelation 21.4 He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. You see, our battle with God is manifested in every area of our lives. Jesus, however, in this passage chooses to highlight two. And we're going to look at those. The first thing he begins to look at is our relationship with our family. 
See, after introducing this radical idea of bringing shalom by the sword, finding peace with and in God's word, Jesus illustrates it in a few ways. First, he wants to show one thing that frequently occupies the highest place in our lives, the thing that is in front of God, one of the false kings that he wants to dethrone. To our surprise, especially at Christmas, it's the family. Jesus says, look, a lot of you have put your family ahead of me. Look at what he says in the very next verse. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own house. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's pretty radical. And that's pretty crazy, really, when you think about it. You're supposed to love me more than your children. How could somebody be so bold as to step into someone else's life and say, you need to love me more than your children? more than your mother or your father. To be so bold that you either have to be the Messiah with the authority to demand that kind of allegiance or you're a maniac. One of the two. In either case, this does not fit the suburban, family-friendly view of Jesus. Certainly not the view of Jesus we like to hold at the holidays with the baby in the manger. Supposed to be all about family, right? And that's precisely the point. Jesus recognizes that in our estrangement from God, in our separation from Him, we tend to put something else in His rightful place, and sometimes we even exalt something that's good and wonderful, like family in a place that should only be reserved for God. Let me be clear, Jesus is not saying it's wrong to love your children or to be committed and love your parents. Family is not evil. The problem is when we exalt something or someone in a place that belongs to God alone. Consider it this way. And I'm not going to assume you believe in God, but let's just imagine if there really is a God. And if He's the creator of all things... If he created you and me, if everything in existence draws its very life and being from God, and if he's eternal without beginning or end, if we are infinitely dependent on him for our existence every moment, every second of our lives, and if our connection to this God in one form or another will exist for all of eternity, either in heaven with him or in hell against him, then does it not follow that our relationship to this Creator should be supreme above everything? What Jesus is trying to say here is, do you recognize the supremacy of God above everything in your life? The one who created your mother and your father and your son and your daughter deserves more allegiance from you than they do. Do you recognize the supremacy of God over your life? Because those who do not are unworthy of God. They're given their allegiance to a lesser thing. A good thing, but a lesser thing. Like everything else Jesus says in this passage, this is counterintuitive, it's countercultural, and it's radical. And it's divisive. I've spoken about this before, but when I was 32 years old, the doctors thought I had ALS. And that diagnosis rocked my world and sent me into a tailspin. Sent me into a time of reflection and truly depression for the next few years. It was a time of reevaluating my priorities and why I'm living and who I'm really living for. Nothing clarifies your life more than death. Whether it's your imminent death or the death of someone close to you. I started thinking about it this way. I love my family. 
I'm called to honor my parents. I'm called to love my wife as Christ loved the church and to care for my children. Those are all non-negotiables for me. But who do I owe my allegiance to? The fact of the matter is my dad is now gone. He's dead. It's with Jesus. Whether it's now or later, one day my mother will be the same. Whether it's now or later, same thing could happen to my wife, my children. So who am I living my life for? Who should I live my life for? Ultimately, my allegiance does not belong to my parents or my family. My allegiance belongs to the one who made me, who sustains me, and who will be with me through all of eternity. The irony, though, is once I realized that, once I faced death and had to figure that out, I have a better relationship with everybody in my family now than I ever had back then. When I put Jesus first, everything fell into place. Part of that is because I've learned to keep each relationship in its proper place. Yes, I love my wife. I love Jesus more. I don't expect more from my parents than I should. I try not to give more to my parents than they're due. I try to give God what's God's and my wife what's hers. It can be difficult, but this is what Jesus is speaking about here. We're to be excellent children and husbands and parents, but only in submission to Christ. Jesus is using one of our most critical relationships to show us a critical point. Where does your allegiance lie? Now, let me just bring a word of balance here, okay? This is not a green light to go to your family at Christmas time and start fighting with them or being belligerent about your faith or unnecessarily causing disunity. I did not tell you to do that. I don't recommend you pick a fight with people in your family who may disagree with you on some minutia of doctrine or even have different religious beliefs altogether. That's not what this is about. Okay, people reject God because the Holy Spirit has not yet penetrated their heart, period. Pray that it penetrates their heart and quit arguing with everybody. Now remember, Jesus commands us to be at peace with all people as far as it depends on us. He also said if you're coming to worship and you realize your brother has something against you, go be reconciled to your brother and then come and worship God. So Jesus isn't talking about just causing conflict in the family for the purpose of it. But we still need to take his words seriously. We live in a day when it least in the Christian community, we talk a lot about family and marriage and children. Part of that's because our culture is growing increasingly hostile to families and we're reacting to it. Part of it is because the scriptures have a lot to say about these relationships. You see, our obedience to Christ is often lived out in our closest relationships. So the tendency is to exalt family and make it the end of all things in the Christian life and we've got to be careful. Jesus says, look, he's not ultimately concerned with unity and harmony of the family. His ultimate concern is that you live in unity and harmony with him. Family comes somewhere under that. The best thing you can do for your family is to fall in love with Jesus and put him the first of everything. Let me give an example. Before I was a pastor, you're going to find this hard to believe. Before I was a pastor... You know, it was actually tempting not to come to church. I mean, like now, I say, I'll stay home and watch it online, and Tammy reminds me I can't do that. But back then, it was hard, and we went to a church where we had church on Saturday night. Attendance at church would drop in our church depending on college football games. If there was a parade in town, if there was a popular concert, our attendance would drop by 60, 70%. But I decided that my family's relationship with Christ took priority over everything else. If people were willing to teach the Word of God and teach my children about Jesus, I'm going to have them there. That's part of my role as the spiritual authority of my home. We will be at church. I told Alex he played football over at Ringling, and, and I told his coach, we play on Saturday afternoons, but I'm telling you, at 5.30, we're going to church. 
So one day the football game was interfered with by a thunderstorm. 5.30, I went up to the coach. I said, Alex and our family are going to church. Would you like to join us? He called us a lot of names as we left. Um, but when it came to church, our family left and Alex walked off the field because I wanted them to know that God comes first. What Jesus is teaching here is that family relationships are critical, but not as critical as our relationship with God. You see, the truth of God's Word will divide families. And I also discovered youth football teams. But Jesus is using the disruption of peace in the family to highlight the impact of a relationship with Him. At some point, following Jesus is going to cost you relationships, even those closest to you. And if Jesus hadn't done enough kind of using the family to show, now he moves into something even more personal, your relationship with yourself. See, after these radical statements of family, Jesus addresses the second thing we often put in place ahead of God, and that's ourselves. Look at the next verse. Whoever loves his mother or father more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves his son and daughter, not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Again, he's using a metaphor. This time the metaphor is the cross. A cross is a symbol of death and execution. What he's saying here is you must take up your cross. You must willingly sacrifice yourself. You must willingly die to yourself. You need to submit your desires, dreams, goals, and ambitions to God. You need to quit living for yourself and live for Christ. You need to know that Christ is the most important thing in your life and He's above you. Self-denial is not a popular message in America. We're all about self-achievement and self-betterment and providing for ourselves and having everything figured out and protecting our street cred and all the other crazy stuff that comes with uncontrolled pride. Jesus says, anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. I mentioned earlier that the baby Jesus was stole from Daly Plaza. There's a Roman Catholic church in New York City not far from Daly Plaza. They have another problem. People are stealing Jesus. But this one is a 200-pound plaster of the statue of Jesus on the cross. Thieves broke in and took it. The interesting part, particularly since this is a Roman Catholic church, the Jesus was part of a crucifix. He was on the cross. But they unbolted him from the cross and took him. The guy responsible for the artwork in the church was perplexed by this. He thought, why would anybody only steal Jesus and not the whole piece of art? Why not the entire crucifix? And that's indicative of our culture, isn't it? We want Jesus, we don't want the cross. Let me repeat that. We want Jesus, we don't want the cross. And we particularly don't want the cross when it's ours to bury. When we have to pick up our cross and die to it every day. He says, he who finds his life he who maintains his life, who keeps trying to control his life, his will, will in fact lose his life. We may throw God a bone once in a while, but ultimately Jesus said, that ain't going to work. You have to take up your cross and follow me. You have to die to what's killing you. You see, we have to, as believers, get to the point where we realize sin is the cancer that it is. I talk to people often who've been diagnosed with cancer and their question is always the same thing. How do I get rid of it? And yet I see people who have the cancer of sin in their lives and they want to act like it's not there. And yet it's just going to keep growing and kill them. 
You've got to get to a point as a believer where you see the sin in your life as the cancer that it is that's going to kill you. But the person who gives up her life, who surrenders herself completely to God, who keeps none of her dreams or hopes or desires unless God says those are his as well, lays it all before God, that's the person that finds true life and finds life abundantly. It's a paradox. It's counterintuitive and certainly countercultural. Like everything else in this passage, give up my life and I'll find it. But you can't negotiate with Jesus. Can't bargain with him. Can't say, well, how about I give you this much and I keep this much? Remember, he didn't come to bring peace. He came to bring a sword, and it divides the body and the spirit. It divides you. It cuts like a knife. Just as at his birth, Jesus was a threat to Herod, this illegitimate king. Jesus' present is a threat to every illegitimate king over our lives, including ourselves. Jesus has to reign over everything. You don't negotiate with this king. You submit and you move on or you reject. So, Jesus is either a madman to make such a bold claim or he's actually the Messiah. The one who alone can make this kind of demand. I want you to listen to what C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, Mere Christianity. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill a tooth or crown it or stop it, but I want it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires that you think are innocent, as well as the ones you think are wicked, the whole outfit. And I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I'll give you myself. My own shall become yours. That's why he came. He came to turn the world upside down coming to demand full allegiance. There's an ancient hymn that dates all the way back to the first century, and it says this, let all mortal flesh keep silent and with fear and trembling stand. Ponder nothing earthly-minded, for with blessing in his hand, Christ our God to earth descends, our full homage to demand. Jesus came to earth. That baby in the manger came to turn the world upside down and to demand full, absolute allegiance. And he says that's going to cause division in the world, in your families, in your home. During this season, don't be fooled. Don't look at the manger and think only about this innocent, sweet, helpless little baby, tender and mild, laying down his sweet head. Jesus was no such thing. He didn't come to bring peace. He came to bring a sword. He didn't come to make us feel better about ourselves, but to demand our allegiance. In fact, when we learn to hate who we used to be, we kill the sin nature in us like the cancer that it is. Jesus came down to turn everything upside down, to use a sword, the Word of God, and to bring peace, shalom, with God. He came to threaten every illegitimate king in the world, including every illegitimate ruler in your life, whether it's family, self, or anything else. And he alone can make such a demand because he is God. We are not. And he's still king regardless of what we think about it. No matter how cute Christmas is, you can't leave Jesus in the manger. You can't keep him as a dependent, helpless baby. You can only look at the manger and see the cross. 
And you can't keep him on the cross. You can't have Jesus without the cross, but the resurrection is what rocked the world. It came with a destiny. This child came to restore our peace with God, to reestablish our relationship with our Creator, to systematically undo the damage that sin has done in the world and in your life. He doesn't bring world peace, not yet. He will next time. Instead, he brings peace from God, and more importantly, peace with God. This is how Jesus described it. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So on that day in history, long ago, the angels said they were bringing good news of great joy for all the people, and they cried out, peace on earth for those with whom he's pleased. You can't keep Jesus in the manger. You can't keep him on the cross. But you can keep him first in everything in your life. That's what he demands. In a minute, we're going to share communion. Jesus, on the night before he died, took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. And he took the bread and he said, this is my body given for you. And then he said, do this in remembrance of me. Whenever you take the bread, whenever you take the cup, you're proclaiming his return, or proclaiming Jesus until his return. So as we take communion today, I'd like you to examine yourself. And I'd like you to just think about what have you put first in your life that you know is not what God's asked you to be first. And as you take communion, I'm going to ask you to pray and let God just take that from you. Put him first over everything. There's no other way to live. And if you're on the fence about Jesus, you've got to decide at some point. Are you in or are you out? He knows your heart. If you meet people this Christmas that you really want to know Jesus, pray that the Holy Spirit will open their eyes and allow them to see truth because that's the only way anyone is saved. So as you take communion today, I want you to really think about what's first in your life. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you came. And if you came and did what we expected you to do, then we wouldn't have needed a Savior. We came because the world needed to be turned upside down. We came because the world was following a sinful pattern of destruction. We needed to be saved. It's in that salvation that we find you. God, it really is a simple thing. Seek first the kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. So God, as we take communion, as we remember the price that was paid, the sacrifice that was paid, I pray, God, that we recognize that you deserve to be nowhere in our life except first in everything. Help us, God, to understand why you came and to make sure we don't miss the message. We love you. We thank you. Holy Spirit, reveal our hearts to us in this moment. We ask it in Jesus' name.